Welcome to Cinemad. Today I'm talking with Alex Cox, longtime filmmaker with a huge cult following. If you grew up in the 1980s, you may have his films burned into your brain. Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, Straight to Hell, and Walker. After making those studio films, he's continued to work on smaller budget features right up to today and his latest film, Tombstone Rashomon. Alex is also a big film fan and de facto historian. In the late 1980s and early 90s, he made introductions on late-night television for the BBC series Movie Drone, giving honest criticism and great background stories to essential cult movies. If you look online, you can probably find them. His documentary, Scene Missing, about the making of Dennis Hopper's second film, The Last Movie, is currently out now as part of the new Blu-ray release of the formerly lost film. Also out now is a new theatrical release of his 1991 indie film, El Patrullo, Highway Patrolman. In the interview, he refers to the Lofty Award at one point. It's an award for lifetime achievement given out at the Loft Film Festival in Tucson, Arizona. Hopefully I don't come off too much like a fanboy during this interview, but it was hard to deny. I say wow a lot. So did you grow up loving movies? Because your knowledge, I think it's rare and I think it's interesting when a filmmaker actually does know film history so well. Maybe you don't have to be a filmmaker and know film history, but I think you're fairly unusual with your knowledge. I think you have to know film history to be a good filmmaker. I don't know if you... I mean, it's easy to be a filmmaker in a certain way, but I don't think... I think it's important to know film history. But it was interesting because I was teaching film at, at, at Boulder and I did the intro to film class, which is this poison chalice, you know. Um, and a couple of the students complained because almost all the films I was showing were from the 20th century, you know. Oh, wait. I know, but and I said, listen, film is the original art form of the of the 20th century. I thought you were just going to say like black and white. Oh, I yeah, there were some black and white ones in there too, but I, mostly they were color. I think I didn't show them a lot of black and white, but just that it was overwhelmingly 20th century film. Huh. Um, so I mean, that might just be my reactionary nature, or or it might be that film really was the original art form of the 20th century, and we haven't found the art form of the 21st century yet. But did you? Where were you born? Was there a lot of access to movies? Did you get to see old movies in theaters? I, I was born outside Liverpool in England, and in those days, yeah, there were a lot of cinemas still in Birkenhead and Liverpool, and it was double bills, um, generally double bills, unless it was a really long film like Two Thousand and One or Lawrence of Arabia. It was films were invariably double bills. Um, which meant that like a movie like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly say, would get cut down to 90 minutes so it could fit a double bill. Um, but the upside of that was there was a lot of product, you know, and I saw many kind of um, sketchy Italian films dubbed in English um, on the lower half of double bills or on both halves of the double bill, including many Italian westerns. Um, there was a film society in Liverpool where we saw the more upmarket stuff. I would go to the film society and I saw Yojimbo there and some Bunuel. Um, and the other thing that I remember about my film education as a kid was coming home, turning on the television in the afternoon. I don't know why I did that because there wasn't usually television in the afternoon in England in those days. It was all 
television began around four and closed down around 11. Um, but I turned on the TV and was confronted with the final scene of Throne of Blood. Oh, the with arrows. this terrified Toshiro Mifune racing about the building, being pierced by these arrows. Why the BBC was showing Throne of Blood at 2.30 in the afternoon on, on a, you know, on a week to have no idea, but they did. And so that really got me interested in film. I'm thinking, what the heck is this? You know? And were you interested in just how films were made? Or is it just like you got to see... I don't think I thought a lot about how films were made at that point. No, I, I just consumed them, you know, as, as holes without thinking about screenplay and cinematography and production design, acting. Um, but because this was 60s, early 70s, there was some tremendous acting going on. I mean, there was Jan Maria Volante and there was Klaus Kinski. You know, there was some really great, great film actors in those days. You know? And this is all new stuff coming out. Yeah. It's not, it's yeah. Not, it wasn't a revival house. Yeah, it was all films that were getting their first release, but they were kind of low budget, or they were treated as like low budget films that would play on double bill for a week and never be seen again. You know, was there creativity going on inside your house with your family? Well, we were. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, in the sense that I, you know, like I sat there scribbling lots of pictures and drawing and making little models, making model airplanes and stuff. My father was a was a mechanical engineer, and he was like the plant safety officer in a. Uh, an oil refinery, and my mother was a homemaker, and so it's kind of regular, regular kind of middle class English. And but uh, but you got the bug somehow. I just thought I kind of figured it out when I went to university because I got a I got um, a kind of a scholarship to go to Oxford and be a law student, mm-hmm. and like about two days into that, I realized I'm never going to be a lawyer. I'm not cut out for this at all, you know, because essentially it's rote learning. Um, And so I just, I started doing plays. In those days, they they gave you a lot more leeway at university than they do now, I think. And I spent all my time doing plays, acting and directing and doing production design and directed a play in the week I was supposed to be doing my final exams, just scraped through. and when I left university, I, I, I was thinking, I'm either going to try and get into the theater or, or film. And one of the academics there recommended that I apply to Bristol University because it was one of only two film schools in the country at that time. There was, or maybe three. Um, there was Bristol, which had a one-year program. Um, there was the... London International Film School and there was the National Film School in Beaconsfield outside London and I didn't like London I didn't want to spend time in London so I went to Bristol and I was a film student and then from Bristol I got a Fulbright scholarship and I went to Los Angeles and went to UCLA which must have been outside of your uh, plans growing up to ever come here, I'd never thought about going to Los Angeles. No, and then and when, when I, apl- I applied to two American universities, Northwestern and UCLA, um, and both accepted me. Uh, and I was interested to go to Northwestern because at that time I think Ernest Callenbach was teaching there, and I thought he was a good writer. But I was aware that it was very cold in Chicago, 
and that the temperature in Los Angeles was was pleasant. You know, I don't like to be cold. <laughs> what was the Liverpool area like, though? That had to be a little bit brisk. cold. <laughs> it can be cold. Yeah, yeah. And it's good to like not yeah. do that for the rest of your life. Yeah. 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 And, and then we were like poor students. Bristol is cold too, and it rains all the time. And we were poor students and stuff. So and we. I, my and my housemates, we kind of, you know, we were really down to like very little money. We had to decide if we were going to buy food or pay the heating bill. We paid the heating bill. <laughs> being warm is more is more important even than, than not being hungry. What didn't? Uh, what was uh, not exciting about London? Because it seems like it's always been some sort of interesting film scene going on there, if not music and everything for young folk. I'm from Liverpool, and there's a huge antipathy between Liverpool and London um, and I fully subscribe to that <laughs> does that carry over to today oh yeah oh yeah yeah I mean we would sometimes say I mean not even joking but just accidentally you know you'd say if you were going down to London I'm going to England because Liverpool's kind of half in Ireland. It's the only British city where the Orange Lodges, the radical, Protest, violent Protestants, march, you know, because there's so many Catholics. Um, so, and when I was at school, my, because I was an atheist, and I would always try and get out of, get out of the compulsory religion, which they, which they impose on you in English schools, and I was told I had to get a letter from my parents, which obviously I couldn't get. Um, but I, would, I just loved that the Catholics didn't have to go to the compulsory Protestantism classes and they could just sit playing cards, you know. So I kind of became an honorary Catholic. Catholic so, atheist. So a lot of your political views might have like, is that formed as you're growing up in that region? Too? I think you are, yeah, I think if you are from there, you're inevitably an outsider. You're never going to be part of the mainstream culture. Because the only way you can do that is if you go down to London, lose your accent, talk a different way you know, and adopt a set of values which aren't as communitarian as they are in the north of England. Yeah, we always, I always, I mean, of course, what I know is from 60s cinema and other, like, recent travel films, but there's always the talk of the northerner. Yeah. Is that... Well, is that what you've seen, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner? Yes. Isn't that yeah. a wonderful Amazing, film? yes. And that's, and he's, he's a, like a... A northern kid with a chip on his shoulder, and, and and I showed that film. I was I was an artist in residence at a college in Oxford. My wife and I were both artists in residence at St John's College, um, and we showed a series of films in the local cinema, the Phoenix, including the Loneliness and Long Distance Runner. And at the end of the film, there was you know it's Oxford. It's like London. It's the south of England. You know, white people, middle aged, nice nice people. And at the end of the screening, one of the ladies in the audience said, well, why didn't Tom Courtney win the race? Was it malnutrition? <laughs> and she completely missed the fact that he steps aside because he won't compete. And this is interesting because you asked me to be a juror one time for something, didn't you? Um, didn't Probably you? Sundance, yeah. yeah. And the thing is... I probably made an excuse, but really, I'm really opposed to competitions. Mm -hmm. I really hate competitiveness. I think that the great joy of filmmaking is the collaborative aspect, is um, that you're all a group working together for a common goal. Um, and that's the most wonderful thing, you know. Um, and film is amazing 
in that regard, unlike anything else, unlike con the construction business or war or anything else, it's film is a group enterprise which, at least if it's an independent film, has to start and finish on time. Um, and and yeah, the worst thing is the competitive aspect, both of having to find money when you're competing against all your fellow filmmakers for a limited pool of funds, and then when the film is finished, then it has to be in festivals and be judged. You know? <laughs> it's all this pressure for attention, and, and you know we can all understand that, and it's too bad that it gets into... It should just be that the film is plain, and that should be enough for people to want to see yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think festivals should... I mean, I, like, I think festivals are very good, and, and, yes. and uh, I, I like going to film festivals, but I don't like the competitive aspect. I don't think they should be competitive. Yeah, it gets awkward. It gets awkward, and I always feel the pressure at work because we'll have some filmmakers that want it so badly because they're worried about, just simply worried about their voice being heard. And so it's this weird necessary evil and we just try to do the most we can do to be like, you've won because you've finished and people are watching it. So yeah. let, this is a marketing thing we're gonna do. Try not to take it too seriously. Keep it fun, hopefully. It, it's uh, not a life or death thing if you get yeah. an award. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. That's and, it. And, and there's a lot of uh, the, the other. There's a lot of inequalities about film festivals. If you go to Cannes, you'll see that the films which are likely to do the best and get the most attention are the ones which have bought billboards on the croisette. You know, but if you're an independent filmmaker, you, I don't think you're going to be having a billboard. It's difficult. There, you know? Yeah, it's difficult. Um, so, uh, so you don't get into Liverpool versus Everton too much there? <laughs> no, because I, I wasn't a sports, I'm not a sports fan, because I don't like competition. Yeah. I'm not right. interested in sports. Right. Yet your films uh, have more risk than competition. So that's, <laughs> it's, like, it's a different level of like, the competition to making your movies. It's the competition to be nice and mainstream and safe. I think that might be something that's you're what, interested so, in. That's why I saw, I mean, I mean cause, yeah, because I can't bear to, to see films normally because they're so lame and so so square but but last year i saw vice that was good yeah <laughs> vice was all right it's up your alley too a good american film you know right. it's not entirely naturalistic mm -hmm. you know and and it's all true interestingly enough because as they say in the focus group at the end of the film if all this stuff wasn't true the filmmakers would have got sued and that's a very nice way to end the. I, mean, I think the punch, the punch up between the, the Republican and the Democrat is stupid and unnecessary. But I think yes. that the, but the, but to bring to make that point that everything you've seen, ironically, is part of the historical record because otherwise Cheney would have sued. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a, so that was a great film. I really, I was a lot of respect for the for the filmmakers. Were there uh, teachers at Bristol that you were really were attached to? Often, I, their film schools are only so good as who's like teaching and helping you along um i the technical <coughs> the technical guys the you know the guys who were in charge of making sure the equipment worked and that kind of stuff at bristol were really good um i remember only one of the teachers who was a guy called bill stair because he'd been john borman's production designer okay. for a while and he had actually, he apparently was the designer of Point Blank, but he, because he was British and it was being made in the US, uh, they called him the color consultant instead on the film. So that was interesting because I remember him, I asked him about Point Blank, I remember him telling me that, well, you know, it's a ghost story, right? And I go, really? And he goes, yeah, because Lee Marvin drowns. 
He never makes it off the island. He drowns. And so... It's amazing. Yeah. And he never, in that film, he never actually kills anybody. They all kind of, they OD, someone falls mm. off a roof, someone else shoots them. He doesn't mm. actually do any of the killings, which is kind of yeah. fascinating. Yeah. But he's a brutal guy. I mean, he's a brutal so guy. I mean, that stuff of him walking down the corridor and stuff is tremendous. It's incredible. Um, and then what was your first impression of Los Angeles once you got here? Um, I drove a drive-away car from New York City to Sweetser and Melrose. Wow. And it was a Mustang. Uh, <laughs> left the driveway with the owner um, and spent my first night in Los Angeles across the street there at the Gilbert Hotel. Still there. Still there. It's closed. I think it's closed at the moment, but it's going to obviously it's gonna get turned into a boutique hotel or expensive apartments. Yes. Yes, it'd be nicer than when you stayed there, for it sure. Was, it was kind of a little bit crummy when I stayed there, but it was very cheap. So, wow, what was your impression of America? Because, I mean, assuming that you've got this incredible vision of America through movies, through yeah. cinema, and then getting to actually drive through it. Did you, well, because that, of movies, did you choose which way to drive? Yeah, we flew, my girlfriend and I, we, we, we flew to New York, and we spent a, a while waiting in... Um, uh, in New York for the driveway car, and then we just drove across, you know, and you get through the mountains and it gets very flat, and um, it was very flat for a long time. Um, and then we got into the mountains again. And, and we, of course, made a detour through Monument Valley. Yeah. Had to do that. Had to. How was that? Oh, it's incredable, yeah. It's so it's that. one of the few sets that really pays off beyond the films. It is. It's really worth, really worth spending time. And then, and then you went straight to fucking Hollywood. And then, and then I, yeah, and I ended up, you know, delivering this car at Sweets from Melrose and then spending my first night here in town. And then uh, we went out to the motorcycle, a motorcycle shop on Lincoln Boulevard the next day and I bought a Honda. And, uh, and that was my, and so I was like a motorcycle boy for about 10 years. Oh, wow. Various, Because in those days, there wasn't so much traffic here. And mm -hmm. really, you could get anywhere in, in the L.A. area in about 40 minutes. And this is, is this 77? 77, yeah. yeah. Crazy. So yeah. I still think that. I still think I can get anywhere in 40 minutes. And then, of course, <laughs> an hour and a half later, I'm... <laughs> can't get across the street. There. Yeah. And then, uh, and it's such a... I mean, it's definitely a different town then, but I think in, in a way a good, vibrant town too. The punk scene, I mean, what's interesting oh, that was to me and you. Yeah. The punk scene was very exciting and it was really, it was great to be here at that time. because cause I, So I ended up knowing an awful lot more about the West Coast scene than I did about the London scene. Oh, wow. Never saw the Sex Pistols. Wow. Because they broke up before they came to L.A. They were right. supposed, I think they were supposed to play one more gig after the Winterland mm -hmm. here in L.A., but they just, they were so... Right. They didn't like each other anymore at that point. And did they never play with, like Bristol? They were never, or was the timing wrong? Not when I was there. Um, they, I don't know, the Sex Pistols didn't really play that much. They were more a kind of a manufactured, right. they were kind of like a boy band right. <laughs> <laughs> um, created by McLaren and yeah. Vivian Westwood. But yeah. um, the best one. Our, our band was, the local band in uh, Bristol was called the Cortinas. Mm -hmm. And then was there a scene there too? Or? There was a little punk scene there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. did you feel like, but I mean. I didn't really pay attention to it though. I didn't right, really, because okay. I, I, it was, it was up 76. It was just beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't meet Strummer till later. I only met Strummer after we had shot Sid and Nancy in London. And we were right. going to go out 
to do the second half of the shoot in, in the US. Mm-hmm. And inevitably there had to be a party, you know, before we left, you know. <laughs> right. And um and I met Strummer in the in the gents' toilets at uh, at the party, you know. Uh-huh. And uh and told him how much I admired his work and invited him to see the film and it was finished, you know. And he did and he got very excited about it because he was looking for a new direction, you know, after the after the breakup of The Clash. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was looking to be something else, a film composer, a producer, an actor, you know. He was right. trying out all these things. And he's good at all that. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Did he know Repo Man? Yes, he must have seen it because it was it yeah. did it did quite well in England, and and that was yeah. how I was able to get Sid and Nancy going was because Repo Man had done very well. Oh, in England. right, right. But then, so so you're here and like and the punk scene's like happening, and then are you starting UCLA at the same time too? Yeah, and so that was so after I was at UCLA, and there were um, and there were a whole bunch of guys going to shows and so on. I just uh, went with them to shows, you know, and so we would go to the Starwood and the Mask, right. the Whiskey a Go Go, and Al's Bar, and and. And occasionally, you know, like a larger venue, you know, like Santa Monica Civic, I saw the clash at Santa Monica Civic. Oh, wow. And uh, so, yes, I just saw a lot of punk yeah. shows. So many good places. You, there was always, I like all those weird places, too, like the Ukrainian Hall. The Ukrainian Hall. There was always these places that, I mean, obviously, we think of them now, and, oh, it must have been a great club, but I'm sure they were just beat places a band was playing, right? Well, though, I, the Elks Lodge Hall was the big deal, because that was yeah. where the riot it wasn't really a police riot. Yeah, um, the cops. The, the cops just beat up everybody, and I, I had a wonderful experience there because I was like tripping on acid when all this was going on, uh-huh. and the Go Go's had played, and the, but then they then the show got shut down, and the and the um, all the kids got beaten up when they left. But I stayed, you know, I didn't want to get beaten up, so I'm just hanging out. And, and also there was a rumor maybe the show was going to start again, and maybe the plugs were going to play, and then. I encountered Tito Lariva of the plugs hiding behind one of the speakers. <laughs> and I said, oh, I guess you're not going to go on, are you? And he goes, not tonight. <laughs> and, and so I was one of the last to leave. And, so I, and there was a big staircase that had gone up to the venue. And I walk out, walking down the staircase. I, it is lined by cops, sheriffs, LAPD, all with batons, some with riot gear, all of them watching me. And I'm like, I just walk down the middle of the staircase tripping my head off and nobody hit me nobody beat me up and what was did you feel the cops when they came in was there very was it very obvious when it started to they were kind of clearing the room but i didn't realize how many cops there were until i actually left and realized that they were just standing on the stairs like you know and it was like one of those gauntlets where they you know where you have to run the gauntlet and they beat the shit out of you but they didn't were they, but they were hitting other people? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of people being beaten up. Outside, there was a tremendous amount of violence. Maybe they're just tired by the time you got there. <laughs> I think it's the hallucinogenic thing. I think it's, you know, like people, who, people who've been on acid have said, you know, they've walked through, you know, beehives and not got stung. That maybe there's some Pacific energy that comes off you. Sure. When you're, when you're tripping um, that made me an unsuitable target. Suitable for beating the Alex Cox story. I was talking to Xander Schloss last night uh-huh. about these very things, about all the stupid things we've done, you know, and the terrible situations we found ourselves in, and yet we we somehow survived, you know. 
Did you feel like a real good political energy with a lot of the bands, or was it more band by band at the moment? I think there was a sort of an irony to it all, because one of the most political bands was Fear. Um, but they were also like, their whole act was like gigantically homophobic, you know, and, and yet, I mean, they had songs like Let's Have a War, you know, Jack Up the Dow Jones. Um, Start in New Jersey. And yeah, so it was, so there was a lot of irony about it, you know, I mean, the most sincere band, I guess, was X, you know, X were like, they were just X, you know, and they were like real serious, um, hardcore punk band and a great band and you know and it was funny because I think we all kind of admired and sentimentalized X a little bit when John Doe and Xene broke up it was oh no don't guys get back together you know <laughs> as if we had to say about it <laughs> but it felt like a family because it really was a small community wasn't it yeah yeah and you knew who they were you know you knew who Billy Zoom was and you knew and there was Ray Manzarak you know who was playing with them as well on the keyboards you know wow how about that you know? <laughs> When I was working at UCLA, I, was, I had a work-study job in the film archive, and one day Ray Manzarak called up and asked if we had his student film still, his Project One. Right, and, and isn't the student award the Jim Morrison Award? Uh-huh. Yeah, and I had to tell him that, uh, no, actually it's long since been lost, along with Jim Morrison's Project One. And like, oh, <laughs> you know, they did. Jim Morrison's shirt was found at some point, but it was, was it? it was mostly like I think footage he shot and someone else put it together. But um, well, we lost Ray Manzarek's film anyway. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> then um, so yeah, so it's not you know when when Repo Man isn't out of nowhere. Like you're really here for quite a while before you. Yeah, and it film. came out of that scene, and it came out of I had a neighbor who was a Repo Man, and I rode around with him in his car, and right. got paid to return cars to the yard. Yeah, like pulling from life. Yeah, so it was all born from the from my LA experiences. And at the time, I didn't realize that LA was any. I thought all American cities were like this. I didn't realize that they were. They actually had quite distinct differences. Well, in your student film, Edge City does the, is now this incredible time capsule of that because it's yeah. pretty much all Seven, on location, right? Yeah, it was all shot seventy eight to eighty. You know, so right in that. Right. In what that have you? Period. You've put it up on YouTube since then, so you've rewatched it. How did you feel about seeing it after so long? I mean, I'm not very sentimental about, about my stuff, you know. I mean, it's, it's fine. There's a couple of good things in it. It's nicely photographed, mm-hmm. beautifully photographed by Michael Miner and Tom Richmond. Um, but at least sadly, you know, mm-hmm. as the, over time, you know, the kind of the quality of the image has faded a little bit. And the audio tracks, we didn't treat them very well in those days because they were analog. And we ran them back and forth across the, across the heads so many times that... Um, the, Did it, the quality of the audio deteriorated a bit during production. And even though it's a film film, I mean, did it feel like a home movie a little bit? Because you're in it and it's all around L.A. at the time. No, not like a home movie because I don't never made a home movie. Oh, I really? mean, we, were, we all aspired to be feature film directors at UCLA. You know, that oh, was our thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like an independent auteur school. And so... That was the aspiration, that wasn't the <laughs> but, but also the thing was we did have as an example Charles Burnett, because Charles had made three or four years before Killer of Sheep. Mm-hmm. And so whenever the TAs wanted to put us in our place, they would bring out the 16mm print of Killer of Sheep and show us that. And wow. we'd go, oh, wow. <laughs> How can I ever do something as good as that? You know? 
It still holds up. Oh yeah, so incredible. We showed it at the loft last um, last December uh, in Tucson, right. and Charles received the prestigious Lofty Award. Lofty, yes. <laughs> Which they've given you too, right? I, me, Noam yes. Chomsky, Rita Moreno, yes. and Larry McMurtry. And yes. Charles are the, are the are so far the recipients of the Lofty Award. It's That's a great good. group. It's that a great be an group. interesting group of people to hang out with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. such good stories. And Charles is the nicest human being. He's the nicest person. He's the so nicest good. film director I've ever met. Did you not run across him back then, though? No, he's he, a little he, bit earlier? He'd already graduated. Okay. He'd already done. He, he was working on my brother's wedding. All oh, right. Um, Which is another very good film. Yes, totally. And sort of rediscovered. It did finally get released, at least good. on DVD, good. Blu-ray. Did, um, was there, how was the scene at UCLA? It was great. It yeah. was a really great scene. It was very polyglot, um, mm-hmm. very multiracial. Um, it, was, it was a great scene. Um, people of every disposition, every different type of film documentaries, dramas, experimentals, um, but mostly mostly drama. It was mostly focused on narrative drama. Mm-hmm. And Were there teachers who had done stuff? Hollywood stuff or different how academics? How many teachers had done Hollywood stuff? Not many. Not many because the school in those days wasn't focused on Hollywood. It was focused on no. the independent sphere. You know, Coppola had gone to UCLA. Right. Lucas had gone to USC and there was the difference. Right. Um, and there were good teachers there. I mean, Bob Rosen was a great uh, critical studies professor. Uh, to show me, Gabriel also taught, taught critical studies. Shirley Clark was teaching there. Um, my advisor, my faculty advisor, was Jorge Perwarren, who was a Chilean documentary filmmaker. Um, it was a good school, and at that time, it was a good school because it was very focused on the independent sphere, and they let you, they let you do, do what you want, you know. Yeah. I think it totally. I think, I think it's more. They're more afraid now at UCLA. They're more afraid that they have to kind of ape the, the Hollywood thing, which is a bit of a pity. Did you? So how the hell did you talk them into doing Repo Man? <laughs> oh, Michael Nesmith um, right, right. was the executive producer. But uh, so many people must have been bugging him, right? Well, we had exhausted all the other possibilities, and he'd submitted it to various studios, including Universal, and it all turned it down. Um, and then later Nesmith told me how it had come about. He had gone to Morton's, which, is a, which was a Hollywood or, or an industry hangout. Um, and it was around about the time of um, a John Travolta movie in which he wore Urban Cowboy. Was that John Travolta? <laughs> that was Travolta. Yes. And so the execs were there. It was a, an execs watering hole, Morton's. And they were there in like their cowboy-themed jumpsuits. Can you imagine? And... Um, and Nesmith was being courted by Kenny Rogers' manager who wanted to manage Nesmith. And so in order to impress Nesmith, he says, what are you working on now? And Nesmith says, well, I've been trying to get this movie Repo Man on, but it's, it's not taking off, you know, it's not going anywhere. Universal just turned it down, you know. And so this manager guy goes, he sees Bob Ramey, head of Universal, over by the bar, and he goes, Bob, Bob, over here. You know, Ramey comes running over, because uh, obviously his manager had some clout. And uh, he goes, so, I hear you turned down uh, this great script of Michael's. What's it called, Michael? Repo Man. Yeah, what'd you turn that down for? And Ramey put on the spot. He goes, oh, I, I don't know that we've turned it down. No, I don't remember. I don't think we've turned it down, have we? Uh, I'm not sure, you know. And uh, 
And this guy goes, hey, you really should make that movie. You know, Michael's got an instinct about this picture, you know, and he didn't know a damn thing about it. Right. He just wants to impress Mike. And uh, next day, um, Nesmith gets a call from Raimi's man, Tom Mount, mm. very disgruntled. Well, I guess we're making Repo Man. <laughs> no, oh, just that was the fortuitous. So, so random. Yeah, the so random, random fortuitous origin of Repo Man. Yeah, how many things have restaurant meals created or ruined? <laughs> totally. And how did you get on with Nesmith? He seems. Oh, I like him. I think he's a good guy. He, he seemed to like really care. All those things that he did really were. I mean, I guess it's post monkeys that he's sort of doing the film stuff. Oh yes, yes. Right? He had produced a film uh, called Time Rider, and it was through uh, through so through Nesmith that I met Miguel Sandoval and Tracy Walter because they both acted in Time Rider. Oh, right. With uh, Fred Ward, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. He was the biker. Yeah. yeah. And then, and yeah, and so he was just interested in it. He, he was just, a nice guy. He and just had good taste. It, it, was, and it was funny because he's very country, you know, and so he said at yeah. one point, you know, don't you think you're going to be having a whole bunch of punk rock music in here, Alex, because you're not, you know, and so it was one song at a time, <laughs> one song at a time, but he came oh, around. Oh, interesting. He came around. He didn't really know the... He wasn't just in the punk scene, no. Yeah, he probably only knew the big players. He probably only had heard of... He was country. He, he wasn't yeah. really even very interested in rock and roll. You know? Oh, funny. But then it worked out to be an incredible soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was there anybody on the soundtrack... Did you get who you wanted? Oh, yes. Yeah, the only thing... We wanted to have a, a Talking Heads song. There was a scene where Otto... Um, which we didn't use in the film in the end, where he, he's sleeping in the parents' garage in between the cars. And I wanted to have him listen to Burning Down the House by Talking Heads, but they, they, they wanted too much money for it. Too uh, I think, I think they, 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 the Talking Heads wanted all the money in the music budget. So, <laughs> so Yeah, at that point it's too late. But also it would have been too mainstream. That was more of, yeah. you know, I mean, it's a wonderful song, but it wasn't part of the that is matrix. The, that's the tipping point for that band yeah. for the other side. But um, Tom, Have you heard Tom Jones and the Cardigans version of Burning Down the House? No. Excellent. Oh, really? Yeah, that's really good. Oh, I've got to find Tom Jones singing the... Oh, Tom Jones and the Cardigans. Right. That sounds good. <laughs> and was, um, were the songs new at the time or was it a mix? The Circle Jerks redo one of their songs into the lounge version. I think all the songs um, were pre-existing except for the one that Iggy wrote for the main theme. Right. But then that lounge version that the Circle Jerks are playing yes. feels like it was for the movie, too. But it's always done for the movie, but it's, yeah, it's okay. a version of another song. Right, right. Did you when the shit hits the fan. I mean, this, in this, I mean, the soundtrack is like so key. If you see a band in a film, you really get to know them, not living here, not growing up at the same time. But that soundtrack also, like, I'm worried I might not have ever known the plugs had it not been yeah, for the soundtrack. Yeah, and, and the soundtrack really helped the distribution of the film because Universal didn't like Repo Man. It didn't want to distribute it. Right. Um, and eventually a guy at MCA Records called Irving Azoff called his homologue at Universal Pictures, Lou Wasserman, and said, uh, hey Lou, um, you know, we're selling a lot of copies of this Repo Man album. Is there a movie that goes with that? <laughs> Which is a big insult, you know, because Azoff and Wasserman, they're all old mafiosi, you know. And, and, totally. And like, you know, and he's calling Wasserman on the carpet about Repo Man and saying, you're an asshole, get that film in the theater. You know. And that's how, and it came, um, where did it do really good? Was it New York? In America, um, it, it got re-released. It played for a long time. It played for about a year at one cinema on Bleecker Street in New York. And Iggy lived around the corner from it, so he was very excited so about fun. that. Huh. But now going into this, you're a smart man. 
you knew how the politics worked. Was it still a surprise that they just didn't like Repo Man and tried I'm to destroy it? I'm not smart. I'm not smart. I'm completely <laughs> naive. I am completely naive and innocent, yeah. you know. And Because um, looking back at it, if you think of the fate of the last movie and Diary of a Mad Housewife and many other, you know, like low-budget independent films that Universal financed and then killed, yeah. you know, it was obvious that Repo Man was going to go that way. Um, but when the the call came from within the apparat to re-release the film, right. Universal put the film in the hands of a man called Kelly Neal, who had a division called Universal Special Handling or Universal Classics or something. And essentially, he was supposed to re-release films that they had mishandled. And he just took two films, Repo Man and Rumblefish, wow. and re-released them both. Oh, I didn't know that about Rumblefish. Because yeah. again, it was a film that would that, that kind of it wasn't like The Outsiders. I mean, the Outsiders yeah. was like as mainstream as you could wish for, and Rumblefish was trying a little bit harder to be something different. I knew it was a disappointment, but I didn't think it was totally under the radar and then to get re-released. So why was that the only two they did? That actually is I think a, that, well, that's actually a successful him. move. Then they fired him. Because <laughs> oh, Kelly right. was uh, looking forward to his Christmas bonus, and they fired him instead. So oh, that Jesus was, so and shut it down. So Right. That yeah. was the extent of They fired classic. him is almost always the answer to all of these questions. Why did that happen? Yeah. And another reason, that, and that's also another reason, I think, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't um, mm-hmm. Bob Ramey, who had commissioned Repo Man for Universal, was then replaced in a regime change by another executive disastrous executive called Frank Price and and that's a common story isn't it that when the regime changes the new regime has to trash all the previous regimes films because if they're successful why were those guys fired right Uh, it's uh, it's so brutal so what was there a it's funny though too (laughs) because Xander and I were talking about that Xander thinks Xander has primarily a tragic view of life and human existence. And I think I have a comedic view. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have the same perspective, the same <laughs> point of view. We just, right. it's, you know, we both know we're going to die in a nuclear holocaust, you know. But <laughs> for Xander, it's a tragedy. For me, it's kind of, oh, fine, you know. <laughs> it's often perplexing to watch these cliches play out, too, just like. Yeah. But they didn't really read the script. Yeah. They've forgotten that what, what was in the script. Oh, really? They see the film and don't like it and start talking on the phone. And, and, you know. Right. Was there arguing over the budget or anything? No, no, not really. I mean, Or casting? Um, no, again, I was quite lucky with, in terms of casting. I mean, mm-hmm. we wanted Dennis Harper to play the Bud role, the Harry Dean Stanton role. And Dennis, and we had a nice lunch with Dennis, but um, his agent wanted a bit more money than than was allocated, and so... Um, That's right my, at his uh, low point, too. That getting, also, getting, yes, it was... Getting clean, yeah. Yeah, he was getting clean, but he wasn't entirely cleaned up. I think he'd, he'd given up the drugs, but was still doing alcohol, or vice versa, but he hadn't yeah. kind of come to the conclusion that he had to give it all up. Um, but he was a very nice man, and I, was, and I really enjoyed meeting him. And so... Um, but yeah. Then my wife said, oh, she wasn't my wife then, uh, uh-huh. Todd Davies said, um, you know, she'd been at some party and she'd met this kind of old, old Western skeleton-y guy who'd be perfect for <laughs> Bud. And I said, Harry Dean Stanton? She goes, yes, that's his name. <laughs> and he was perfect. He so was good. perfect. 
Well, and it's obviously this is the thing too about like just having you don't have to know everything about film history, but if you understand how films work, you understand how important the character actor is. Yeah. And you put a character actor in the lead, and it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And then plus Tracy Walter, yeah. plus everybody else, yeah. um, the guy playing the cop is a long time. Oh, uh, Plechner. Yeah, Plechner. The guy, uh, Richard Ferrangi. Ferrangi, yeah. long time yeah. working Where's man. Now? He's still alive, but he hasn't acted in a long time. I haven't seen him in stuff. I know. I mean, he definitely made the transition TV at some point, but he pops up all the time in the seventies and eighties yes. anyway, yes. and he's always solid, and yeah. that's what helps make this film better. Yeah. But um, did you and? <laughs> And Xander, who is your personal character actor, yeah, did you meet him in the punk scene? I knew his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, I dated his sister, and so um, I met him that way. And he was just this young kid at that point who was like a very, very talented guitar player, you know. Right, and just became friends. Yeah. And it yeah, made sense. and it just we just thought kind of this would be a good part for for Xander. And originally, we cast somebody else. I. I, I you know that was a that was kind of a difficult thing. We cast another actor, it just didn't work out, and luckily I was able to convince Nesmith. Oh, there was a sound problem, and I will never know whether the sound recordist created the problem or whether it just happened. But it was uh-huh. a blessing because we we had to reshoot the scene, and Nesmith uh, agreed that we could cast Xander in the role. There's room to move as Fry Cook. Yeah, yeah. And now, thanks to both of you, people are still singing Feeling 7-Up. Yeah. Far beyond yeah. Um, that. Was it, your, was it always in the script to have all the generic stuff? Was generic, were generic products actually in existence? Yes. Uh, yeah. what we had originally tried to do product placement, you know, thinking we could get a whole load of free beer and stuff like that. And then we realized that we couldn't, that no one would give us anything for free, except for the, except for the, uh, um, the air freshness car we got a bunch of those for, for free. free yeah the christmas trees <laughs> without scent right um, oh that's good and ralph's supermarkets had just come out with this generic design oh. with so all the stuff that says like chips um uh you know every, obviously ralph's didn't sell cans that said food on them, <laughs> but other than that it was all they were ralph's generic products i didn't know that so that's where it started and that had just that was kind of a thing that was happening at simultaneous with the punk movement that seemed to be to be very appropriate for some reason totally appropriate yeah and so it just fit right in mm-hmm. um and now like all this time has passed obviously there was there was all the era where it was awkward and it was hard to find or hard to see repo man in the theater for quite a long time but now it seems that like do you actually have more control of screenings now no no not at all oh mm-hmm. wow it's still, but then did they make a new print at some point? I think they made a DCP. Oh, okay. Because, um, no, they have made a DCP. So that's good because it's back catalog for Universal. The film's 35 years old, so it must still be making the money if they've come to the trouble of a DCP. Right, right. So it's still a little bit of this, it's this crazy thing because it's your invention, your idea, your your art, but it's sort of not part of you because people still have to get it from this giant corporation well here's the interesting thing mm. up until last week that was so but last week the american rights to the screenplay of repo man reverted to me last week yes wow congratulations 35 years, 35 years after happy birthday control. thank you and so it's only american rights not international but it means that if i can find a financier who will go with that limitation, I can at last do the sequel to Repo Man. Oh, wow. Dear run. 
Is it? Is that? So what was stopping that though? Because it's characters they control. Yeah, because all Universal yeah. owned the script until last week. Right. So, so you I, couldn't do anything with the same names. No. Or... No. But now the script has reverted to me, and I can do a sequel. I can do a television series. But again, I can't really do a television series without the international rights. Oh right, because it's That's an expensive it's an expensive undertaking, yeah. and I really need to be able to offer international as well as domestic mm-hmm. for a series. And in a way, too, I'm not so. I'm not so hung up on doing series and stuff. I know it's great for the actors because it's so much work, you know, but, but it's not so much of a director's medium as a showrunner's medium, you know. And, I, and whereas if I do a feature, yeah. and ideally it can play theatrically, mm-hmm. that would be nice. And lots of stories don't need to be five hours long. That's the other problem with episodic that I find is a lot of subsidiary characters who in a movie wouldn't get more than 30 seconds screen time get, like expanded exponentially you know and I'm not interested in all the subsidiary characters of Deadwood or Wire or Mrs. Maisel you know even though I'm entertained by by the the show Mm -hmm. up to a point sure yeah everything wow is there a show that's perfect it's pretty hard Prisoner right that's even kind of minimal right The Prisoner yeah The Prisoner is is the best thing that was ever on television oh do you see, uh, you, I didn't realize that's a real town until recently. Yeah. I heard a podcast where they went there. Yeah. Have you ever gone there? Yeah. I think it's England, right? Yeah. It's in Wales. Wales? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah what was Wales it like? Coast. It's great. It looks just like in the prison. Yeah. <laughs> it looks just like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't, it, it, the dome doesn't have that, that apparatus inside. That was all right. done at MGM in London, all the interiors. Oh, they got to just like blow up balloons and just send them out every day just yeah. to mess with people but um and they and when yeah. they were making the, the shooting the interiors of the prisoner at mgm on a big stage there uh, there were two projects being made simultaneously the prisoner and 2001 oh really yeah. I didn't... imagine so they would all eat lunch together oh, in the canteen a great cafeteria can you imagine that <laughs> the cafeteria at lunchtime on 2001 and the prisoner lagoon and kubrick yeah Maybe hanging out. They, well, they must have met. They must have passed each other in the corridor. Yeah, because he's a known actor by that point. Oh, so yeah, yeah. He was the most highly paid actor in British television at the time. The most highly paid yeah. actor in Britain, you know, film yeah. or television. They must have talked about something. Or maybe not, because, you know, directors were also very competitive and, yeah. and paranoid, and, and so maybe they avoided each other. You know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> was there... Um, uh, is there somebody then that you grew up with like that? Like that's like a like a Kubrick or somebody that really made you think you could go like you you take this you go to law school and right away it doesn't work. You go to film, but was there some sort of filmmaker or film like what made you think like God I actually can do this? This is like in a positive way. No, no. I mean, I saw a bunch of films that I enjoyed. I mean, I enjoyed Italian westerns very much. I enjoyed American westerns. I I loved Kubrick. I, I loved Big Well. I loved I loved Kurosawa. So I just thought, you know, this is a great medium. I mean, you just want to. This would be the most wonderful thing if I could get involved in it. You know, because yeah. um, the theater would have been great too. The theater yeah. is a different experience because the theater is so immediate, you know, and it changes every night, um, and it's much more an actor's medium. Yeah. Repo Man the musical it's still yeah. possible what happens in the sequel um, it, Otto Re- and Miller return from their 35 year voyage around time and space but they've been traveling at the speed of light and so they've only aged 90 minutes <laughs> and uh-huh. Otto has to pick up 
where he left off in a dystopian society that's kind of like ours 20 years on. So still futuristic from right now. Yes, yes. Um, it's actually, there's two halves. It's kind of the first half is Republican world and the second half is Democrat world. And they're both hells of different <laughs> types. So you couldn't get, um, well, actually the original actor passed away, didn't he? Harry. Yeah, um, um, and also the... Um, Fox Harris, Fox who Harris, played yeah. the uh, mad scientist. Yeah. And Vanetta McGee yeah. has died. Yeah. Um, and obviously everybody else is just older, so it would be a new cast. Just older. So it's except, except for Otto, who hasn't aged at all. So Otto, right. has, Otto is going to be a, some guy who's 20, 21 years old. Right. And, and everybody else is either old or different. Is it, uh, is it something that might have a good soundtrack, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, E. Pop has said, who now is an executive producer of TV shows, <laughs> um, Iggy is going to be the musical director. If we can get it on, because yeah. he knows so many bands, because people are all always sending him their music and stuff, and he's really aware. I mean, he's a musician; he's really aware of the whole right. the scene in a way that I'm not anymore. So, what like after all of these? I mean, you've had a really good film career for anybody, and you've gotten to do what you've wanted to do. And there's things you haven't been able to finish, and you know the scaling is what it is, but. Like, what keeps you motivated? Why do you not just give up or try something different like theater? Oh, well, because these are all worlds of their own, you know, and it's very difficult to sidestep into... And also, I think it would be awful for me to kind of try and barge my way into the theater and... and, uh, because, you know, there's a lot of people waiting in a line to direct at the Ashton Shakespeare Festival. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. (laughs) No, I think... um, my ex-wife, who was Peruvian, used to say, "Cada chancho tiene su corral, y nadie tiene que meterse en él." Every pig has its own corral, and nobody else should go in it. You know, and my corral is is being a filmmaker. But there's anybody would not be surprised if you were like, "Fuck this! I'm going to make a hundred thousand dollar films from now on." Well, I've been doing that. And you have been doing you know, that. I've been doing that, but now I need to make some money. You know, yeah, there's right. no point in making Repo Man two for a hundred thousand dollars. No, no. to spend no. a bit of money on it. No, maybe you could get the car, but well, but I think oh. it's all it's all it's positive and it's endearing because so many people. I mean, also it's just like people get bitter, and you understand it. Money gets stolen. You don't get paid. You're, they ruin a film. It's very hard to not be disillusioned. You just have, I mean, it's like whether life is a tragedy or a comedy. I prefer to view it as a comedy. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was hey, great visiting all. with you. Well, thank you for coming by. <laughs> and of course, like I'm sure I told you this before, but like, you know, uh, thank you for helping me survive the '80s. <laughs> I was 14 when Repo Man came out. Saw that, saw the decline, and it was like, oh, everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. Yeah, because there are freaks out there. You know? yeah. It's not, not everybody's a total square. Yeah.